You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 14th, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. And we have a special guest rogue this week, Asia Moon. Asia, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Hi. So, Asia, you are here because you won the auction at TAM last year. Is that right? That's correct. So you actually th- thought this would be worthwhile to come on the show. <laughs> we are that was so quite sorry. Uh, the entertaining experience for me because uh, Rob had said to me, hey, let's uh, go to town. And I said, okay, sure. And I wasn't feeling that good. And he's like, come up here. You're going to miss it. And I came in just as you guys started the auction. I was like, well, I can't miss out on that. So into the auction I went. So Asia, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I uh, live in Vancouver, British Columbia. I run a uh, medical marijuana dispensary called the Three Happy Cats. Holy shit, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that is pretty awesome. Three Happy Cats? Yeah, the Three Happy Cats, which stands for THC, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, yes. yes. Asia, yep. do you frequently hear the joke, you could put your weed in there? <laughs> uh, no, actually, I don't hear that very often. I uh, don't get enough time to spend with the patients or with uh, the employees that I have there. Yeah, I wonder how many people do that, but that's from a skit from Saturday Night Live that we just ran with for like for the past 15 years. It's just, know, right? such a funny Longer thing. than that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> really? So Asia, do you buy yours? Do you grow it? What do you do? Um, I personally can't grow any marijuana. I look at a plant the wrong way and it dies. <laughs> um, huh. uh, I do buy it from Health Canada. We've now just had a changeover in the MMAR uh, program to the MMPR program where the government has decided where they don't want people to be growing it at home and that you should be buying it from commercial growers. Wow. And mm-hmm. we have uh, a huge uh, uh, court case going up health against Health Canada right now where um, John Conroy, who is a huge lawyer here in Canada, has decided to uh, make a repeal on uh, the decision. Are you saying that it's uh, going to be made illegal for people to grow it at home or it's just That's, discouraged? Yeah, it's going to be illegal. Oh, do you support that legislation? I think that the people that are growing at home definitely should have a little bit more guidelines to what they're doing. I don't think we should take away their right to grow at home, but um, definitely we need to be more involved in what they're doing and uh, show them the right way to do things. I can't think of a another sort of substance that's regulated in that way, like even alcohol. People are allowed to make their own alcohol at home, so it seems to stand a reason that they should be allowed to grow their own plants at home as well. Right, but only certain amounts, right? You can't like mass produce it at home. Right, then, yeah. Then you're a distillery. Yeah, right. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I can see that it's just limiting it to a certain amount. The government's also limited how much marijuana you're allowed to possess on you at one time. Right. Except for you, of course. Well, I do have a limit as well. It's 150 grams per person. And of course, whatever you have in your dispensary is the medical facility. So that has, of course, a different amount uh, within the facility. Absolutely. It's uh, like a 92. You, you can bake with it. And you can also smoke it. Well, it's decriminalized in Connecticut recently. so. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, you can have up to a certain amount. You only get a fine. You don't get any sort of misdemeanor. Nice. That's it. You just get fined. Yeah, it was, oh. it was ridiculous, throw, you know, throwing people like that in jail with all the hardened criminals. And I just had a joint on me, and I'm in jail next to next to this guy who uh, is winking at me. I don't know. <laughs> winking at you? That's what you went with? No, no. no he had something, in, he had he something in his eye, Bob. He, was, he could have said like next that. to a murderer or... Yes. <laughs> yes. I know. I had a fly on no, a yes. murderer. It's, and, it's, it's, yeah, but it's the, winking, it's the winking murders that I'm mostly scared of. <laughs> 
the, the oh winking God. murderer of Hartford. <laughs> oh my well, God. Well, it's definitely expensive to house criminals for marijuana. Uh, speaking of awesome drugs, uh, <laughs> <laughs> on this day in history, uh, today is May 17th that this podcast is going out. And back in 1955, on May 17th, Dr. Nathan Klein testified before the United States Congress to talk about his work with the drug reserping. Klein was testifying in order to uh, influence Congress to pass the Mental Health Studies Act of 1955, and he became a big advocate in Washington to uh, convince the government to fund studies on things like antidepressants because uh, he basically founded the field of psychopharmacology. So without Nathan Klein, we maybe wouldn't have the wide variety of awesome antidepressants and anti-anxieties and all of those great drugs that we have today. We would just have pot, which would be awesome, but <laughs> maybe not the best for everybody. Reserpine is no longer used today uh, because of all of the bad side effects and things. But back in the day, apparently, uh, Gandhi used it as a uh, tranquilizer. But in the 50s, it was used to block the uptake of norepinephrine and dopamine. What does that mean, Steve? So those are hormones in the sympathetic nervous system. So essentially, if you it uh, depleted that these, these are catecholamines or the, the category of hormones, which means it would reduce your, you know, your fight or flight adrenaline kind of uh, sympathetic activity. So it, it was used, for example, to treat hypertension, high blood pressure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was also used uh, for patients suffering from Huntington's disease, apparently. Uh, but like I said, it's I, it might still be used some places sometimes, but for the most part, it's rarely used because of side effects, which included uh, the possibility of depression and suicide, although that was never fully proved. Uh, but yeah, there are much better drugs now. But yeah, that kind of uh, it paved the way for m more research into uh, psychopharmacology. It's interesting to note that prior to modern psychopharmacology, I mean, there were hospitals just full of people who were either psychotic or had a major depression or essentially dysfunctional because of mental illness because we had essentially no effective treatment for them. And it's a really different world today. Obviously, there's still a lot of uh, mental illness that's difficult to treat. You know, these our drugs are not perfect, but... Just having options versus having no options in terms of treating severe mental illness, you know, it is it is night and day. Bob and Jay, do you guys know that our father was on reserpine for hypertension in no. the 70s? Oh. No, I didn't know that. Huh. Is that the drug that caused him to go into a depression? Yes. Oh. Yes, I remember yeah. that. I, rem I remember him being very, very, uh, very depressed. Yeah. And then he was taken off the drug and he got better. Wow. So anecdotally, you know, in, in his case, um, and just to know, I mean, it is, it's never really been proven in a, in a quality study, like a really well controlled study, but that doesn't mean that there's evidence that it doesn't cause depression. It just was never really studied in a controlled way. It sounded more like it was taken off the market, really, it was replaced by better drugs before anybody had really had the yeah. chance to study that. Well, let's move on to some news items. Uh, we're going to start with a debate that occurred. 
Was it just last week? Last yeah. week. Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. You were there. You guys, you guys all have a chance to see it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was awesome. fantastic. See it. Oh, I live tweeted it. So this was Intelligence Squared. They are a organization that runs, that run debates. That's what they do. They host debates, which are supposed to be very, um, respectful and, you know, and, and intellectually, qual- you know, of high quality. Um, and they were, the debate was on, is, uh, death is not final. That was the proposition. Death is not final. On the pro side was Eben Alexander, the neurosurgeon and author of the book Proof of Heaven that we've discussed before on the show, and Raymond Moody, who was the author of the book Life After Life, which was the, really the first, this is book published in 1975. It was the first book to really document the uh, near-death experiences, and he, I, I believe he coined the, that term in his. Yeah, book. he did. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's funny because I, you know, I read that book in the probably in the late seventies or early eighties. So uh, that's like ancient history to me. I was actually, frankly, a little surprised the guy was still alive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I heard that he was going to be on the debate, I'm sorry, like, <laughs> but you know, how much more convincing would his argument have been if he wasn't? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. Yeah, right. That's true. Here, joining uh, yeah. us from the next life. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, we I mean, can he, he, you know, that's, it was 40 years ago almost. And, uh, but he, no, he's just, you know, still very, very much alive and active. Actually, Raymond Moody was a very nice guy. And backstage in the green room, he was, you know, very complimentary. He said he listens to the show. He loves the SGU. And, you know, I could tell he meant it. He wasn't just BSing because of the conversation. He's a philosopher mm-hmm. of logic, you know. He just has this one, apparently sacred cow of near-death experiences. Then on the against the proposition, of course, is me, but also Sean Carroll, the physicist. I uh, love yep. Sean. Yeah, we've yeah, had he's awesome. before. Yeah, he was he was great. He was great. Yeah, so you know, I I was in the debate, so I'm you know hardly an objective observer. So you guys gotta tell me what you think. Well you won. We did win. So we're <laughs> on that. Objectively, Which is a surprise. Were yeah. you guys surprised at at the win? I just I just assumed that they would lose because just so many people are just so invested in that, in that belief and place so much importance on it. So I was very pleasantly surprised. Well, if you paid attention, Bob, if you paid attention, <laughs> um, you'd notice that the real swing here was with the people that were undecided. That's not true, actually. First, to Bob's point, um, I I was not surprised. I was actually surprised in the other direction where I – because Intelligence Squared tends to attract, um, I don't know, a pretty, pretty smart crowd. And not okay. to say that smart people can't, uh, you know, can't like <laughs> believe that there's life after death, but they tend to be, I feel a, a, a pretty skeptical crowd. Um, but that said, in response to Jay, um, Sean Carroll actually did a wrap up after the debate and he said the same thing. It looks like we, uh, moved over a lot of the undecideds because when you look at the final numbers, uh, the four group, uh, gained a few, uh, and of course, Steve and Sean gained more. So it did look like they were undecided, but, um, because Intelligence Squared, I guess, uh, does it by, I think they do it electronically. So uh, they were able to tell who changed their votes from what to what. And so oh, Steve cool. and Sean actually, um, got this about the same number of undecideds as the other team. They were about split. Uh, and the, so the winning group came from the people who had been for the motion. 
That so, is amazing. Yeah. Wow. And how does, yeah. And so, so the listeners know how this is designed is the audience votes before the debate. Their opinion on the matter, yet for, against, or don't know, and then they're asked after the debate to go ahead and cast another vote, and we see how they how they changed. You know, I, guys, I, tell me if you agree. I thought the moderator did a fantastic job. Specifically, there are certain points which which often moderators will fail to do is when somebody makes a contention or a point, and then they go to the other side to address it. That then he was very very good at, at crystallizing and stopping the discussion and going back to the other group, saying, "Okay." This is what you said. There's his response. Now, what do you say to that? He really kept the debate moving forward and progressing it. Um, and there were very specific instances where he did that very well, I thought. Yeah, definitely. I felt the same. He also made me laugh out loud when uh, he <laughs> turned from the pro side to the anti side and said, so we're talking about ghosts now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I laughed right. so hard. It was great. I also do I, like I think the, I, the idea that he will reject a question for yes. varying reasons. Like yes. From the audience. You know, one, yes. one reason would be it would take too long to answer it or it had already been covered or it's just it wasn't you know relevant. It wasn't germane. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, that was because um, the show was ultimately going to be a podcast and a live broadcast or and a recorded broadcast. So they were editing out. Questions from the audience that weren't relevant to the discussion. Yeah. Which, which is a good idea. They, they, they coached us pretty well beforehand too. So he told us he was going to do that. He told us that if one side asks you a question and I don't feel you answer it, I'll keep pushing you and force you to give an answer. Good. Yeah, that's Very great. Good. Yeah. That's, which he did do a couple be. of times as well. Yeah. Like when I, I pointed out to, to Eben Alexander that, um, you know, he doesn't know when his memories of these experiences formed. He doesn't know. He says it was when his brain wasn't working. He can't possibly know that. That's kind of the crux of my criticism of NDE as evidence for, you know, extracorporeal. Oh, it's critical. Absolutely critical. It's like, yeah, you don't know when those memories form. You have a long period by definition of recovery. And your brain could have certainly been forming those uh, experiences and memories then. You know, then it tries to make sense of these disjointed, you know, poorly formed uh, poorly constructed experiences later and it creates a narrative out of that. And oh, sh- surprise, surprise. The narrative is right along with your culture, your beliefs, your religion. You know, it's not like you have Christians have a near death experience and in it they are learn that Buddhism is actually the correct religion. I mean, that never, it's always perfectly in line with whatever their cultural predisposition is. But anyway, that so that's kind of the critical point. I was happy that he kind of, he forced that issue, and Eben really had no answer for it. He did, he really didn't yeah. have any 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 comeback for that. To me, that was the surprising part of this debate is that I thought we were going to get more from the opposing side. Frankly, I expected a little more. I think I overestimated these these gentlemen. I did not read their books, but I, I was hoping that you know this kind of forum would bring out their A game, and I felt that they just didn't bring it. Asia, what did what did you think of the debate? Well, I thought the debate was interesting because of the vote before and after. So they gave them a chance to kind of express their opinion and how they felt after. I I did find some of the, I can't remember the name of him, but uh, the the gentleman that had the personal experience and he was just arguing from what he had seen, apparently. That's Evan Alexander. Alexander. Yeah. And it just seemed that was all completely based on what he had gone through as opposed to any kind of actual evidence and it was interesting that he right, was, it was so a into what he mm-hmm. had experienced and kind of just ignored everything else and he did mention the talk that he once felt one way and that he's now changed to the feelings that he has now so it's interesting what a personal experience can do to someone well that's the story he's telling anyway 
Yeah, well, uh, exactly. Which, which he admits evolved over weeks and months after this all happened, you know. I, I believe that, though. You know, just because I think a smart person can suddenly change their mind when something that drastic happens, you know, even if he hadn't had a near-death experience – so like a quote unquote near death experience, he actually had a near death experience. You know, he did almost die. Right. And going through like something tragic like that can really change a person and change their thought process, you know, and make yeah. them particularly, I think, make them start believing something that brings them great comfort. Yeah, I, my, my sense was that he was sincere. Um, it doesn't change the nature of the evidence that he was providing. But yeah. I don't doubt well, that he had a profound experience, even though it was happening in his own head. Absolutely. It still was, you know, earth shattering to him. And I can understand why someone could be moved to that degree. Uh, it's just frustrating as a critical thinker and a skeptic and a, and a science educator that he did such a 180 and then did so much, you know, quote unquote damage, right? By misinforming people and telling people exactly what they want to hear. Hey, this doctor, this smart doctor scientist guy is now saying there's an afterlife and, and, you know, giving proof, quote unquote proof. It's a little infuriating. To add, <laughs> man, when he, when he misquoted Carl Sagan, I got, mm -hmm. I got visceral. <laughs> so did, so did Steve. <laughs> <laughs> but, as, well, as much as Steve can get visceral. Yeah, well, I the saw internet Steve almost rising exploded. from his so head. When, uh, yeah. What's funny is I'm in my living room and I'm sitting there with my wife and my sister-in-law <laughs> and I'm just freaking out when he said that. And then I literally go up to the TV. I'm like, come on, Steve. Come on, Steve. Come on. <laughs> like I'm like telling Steve, damn it, man. Say something about this. <laughs> and he did. he did. Yeah, well, yeah. so Eben said that Carl Sagan – wrote in The Demon Haunted World that the evidence for childhood reincarnation was overwhelming, and, which, you know, of course, he never said that. What he, what he actually wrote was he was talking about things that maybe, you know, would be interesting to do some further investigation. And he, you, he mentioned uh, children who recount stories of past lives as one of those things. But he said he thought that it was unlikely and that the evidence was dubious. So Eben turned unlikely and dubious into overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's know. insane. I can actually right. picture Carl yep. Sagan smacking himself on the forehead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you just have to read the next sentence. Right. But, you know, this is again the internet age. So, of course, the internet erupted. You know, they were like, yeah. I think oh, yeah. it took literally like one minute for there to be a picture <laughs> of the relevant page of a demon haunted world on Twitter. Speaking of the speed of the internet, my favorite meme to come out was a graphic of Sean Carroll quoting Scott Aronson saying, quantum mechanics is confusing and consciousness is confusing. So maybe they're the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. He did. So amazing. After the debate backstage, you know, I was chatting briefly with Eben again. He looked at me and he goes, have you ever read The Demon Haunted World? <laughs> <laughs> so apparently he's just not a good listener. Oh he's, yeah, yeah. he's just not good at paying attention okay. to that. Because you literally said, I've read that a hundred times during the debate. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he just didn't hear me. I think no. he, yeah. he, in the moment. He didn't hear you yeah. over the dozen people applauding his uh, yeah. his use of the Carl Sagan yeah. or misuse of the Carl Sagan quote. Right, right, right. Did, did you guys... Uh, Notice when uh, the moderator was uh, mentioning, talking, introducing Steve and saying, uh, giving his uh, 
you know, all his achievements. And he mentioned, uh, the, and the New England Skeptical Society, and everyone laughed. Literally, you could hear a, some, a lot of chuckling in the audience just because the name of it, you know, the New England Skeptical Society. I thought that was funny. Yeah, rubes. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Evan, we're going to move on. Yes. You're going to tell yep. us about a recent lawsuit of the uh, company that makes the five-fingered shoes. Yeah, so I don't know if you – have we talked about the five-fingered shoes before? I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. And, uh, you know, being active in the martial arts, I've actually seen uh, people wearing these in our martial arts studio. Um, so it's not something I'm unfamiliar with. I've seen people wearing these things. They're basically gloves for your feet. Right. They're light. They have little holes for your toes and they, you know, kind of fits snugly yet comfortably on your feet. And, you know, that's fine and all. But when you're going to go ahead and you make and sell these things and you're going to start to name some specific health claims about the benefits of wearing these things, be careful because you may find yourself having to settle for millions of dollars in a class action lawsuit over false advertising, which is exactly what has happened here. The name of the company is Vibram, V-I-B-R-A-M. They are the makers of the Five Fingers Running Shoes. And uh, well, they've says, settled it out. It says of barefoot running shoes. Isn't that an oxymoron? It is an oxymoron. I don't understand that. I think. Well, there, yeah. the whole supposed, the whole point of them is meant to mimic, replicate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 right. Yeah. Like you're not wearing anything at all, where but you actually are. <laughs> they have settled a 3.75 million dollar class action lawsuit, and again, it was over false advertising, which is the key here as to you know it's it's important as to why they they they've had to pay and they've had to basically admit that no there are there are no health benefits that they were claiming well wait um, wait aren't they pretty adamant though in saying that they uh that they've done nothing wrong they they're still adamant in saying that I've read that in multiple places yeah they, well, they won't do. Yeah, yeah, they they always do, but you know, at the same time, then why are you settling? You know, well, for, you, you for, can't really use that as a lawsuit. Like, people settle all the time to don't to save court costs and, and for a myriad of reasons. You can't automatically conclude that oh, since they settled, they must be guilty, not necessarily. But in this case, clearly, there seemed to, to me anyway that there's some some serious misdirection going yeah. on and all that. But, stuff. but what often happens is you know the lawyers are happy to take a settlement, and the company will say, okay, we'll give you you know three point seven five million dollars, but we want to be able to say that we did nothing wrong. And the lawyers don't care because they just want their money, right? And and their clients want their money, and you know, and having the company admit that they lied is there is negotiable. Yeah. Well, part of this lawsuit, though, is they're not allowed to make claims anymore about well, these sure. things. Well, sure. Of course. Right. Yeah. So, so they stepped over you're, that line. You're, you know, like, like how many, to, you know, devices and products and whatever on the market there where the companies are just careful about the kind of claims that they make? You know, they'll say, you'll feel invigorated, whatever. You know, they could say, they could make all kinds of statements that are just implying claims, but they stepped over the line and made specific health claims. And that's where they got into trouble. But what, what's, what's amazing is how often that happens and companies don't get into trouble. And I think, yes, I think, you know, it would probably be a good thing if we start to see more of these class action lawsuits. Cause I think there's probably hundreds of out, of them out there ripe for the picking. Let's see. Uh, homeopathy, maybe. Where are the class action lawsuits against yeah, these homeopaths? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, for- well, or even every other shoe company. Because uh, I mean, I've, I've been really disappointed in the coverage of this and in, in the media uh, because I see a lot of headlines that are like 
five finger shoes are total bunk, you know, or what have you. And the thing is, like, these are hideous shoes that make you look like a total loser when you wear them around. And I, I have lots of friends who wear them. And even they they know this, they accept it. It's fine. Um, but because of that, I think people are more than happy to sort of pile on. And I think the facts kind of get lost. And so uh, what's been sort of spreading the message that's been spreading is like these are you know this shoe company has been claiming that you know running in this way is good for you and it's total bs don't believe it go buy these other shoes which isn't really correct the truth i think from everything i've read um being a runner who hangs out with a bunch of runners is that if you run in a in a very particular way, mainly by not landing on your heel, uh, these shoes could be great for you. If you don't run in the way that these shoes are good for, then these shoes are going to be terrible for you. And that is something that the company was not putting out there enough. You know, they were making stupid claims about how these shoes would be great for anybody when they're not. Um, but the problem is the media swinging it back in the other direction and being like, no, all other shoes are fine. Those are the shoes you should be using for running. When in fact, no, if you're a runner, if you want to take up running, go and talk to someone who is a professional who can look at your gait, who can figure out the right shoe for you, because it's a complicated issue. It's not just this shoe is bunk and the shoe isn't. They were claiming specifically that it would improve your posture, strengthen your muscles and reduce injuries. That reducing injuries is always one that gets people in trouble. Yeah, because and this is where the gait comes up. It'll reduce yeah. injuries if you have the very particular gait that these shoes are good for. You know, if you do not land on your heel, if you land on your heel, these are the worst possible shoes for you. There's no uh, there's no padding. There's no spring on the heel. So you're effed. You will be injured. I, I own a pair, by the way. You know, they're everything Rebecca said, you know, just from a subjective level, they're weird. They look weird. Um, I really don't like having something be between my little toe and the next toe. All right. Well, thanks, Evan. So, so Bob, you're going to tell us yet again how wonderful graphene is. Yes. Yes. Graphene, we have talked about it, but it, and it is pretty epic on so many levels. But scientists have recently discovered that in addition to its already impressive resume, we could now add that it can conduct an almost unlimited amount of heat, while which actually – directly contravenes a known law of material science. So it's really interesting. So, so yeah, you have heard it here. Graphene does indeed break the law, um, but the details are pretty fascinating. Now, graphene is an allotrope of carbon, meaning that it's merely that it's a, it's a different form of an element. In this case, uh, the element of life as we know it, carbon. Um, but uh, there's lots of allotropes of carbon. Uh, diamond is, is another one, uh, probably more well-known. It consists of a one atom layer thick arrangement of the, of the atoms in a hexagonal pattern, you know, like chicken wire. If you can imagine chicken wire, that's exactly how the atoms are arranged. Since its discovery in 2004, it's been found, as it was theorized decades earlier, to have an amazing suite of properties, including strength beyond diamond. For this case, uh, specifically, if you can imagine a sheet of graphene as thick as cellophane, um, which is actually pretty thick as far as graphene goes, but uh, it's still very thin. An elephant can actually be supported uh, on on graphene that is uh, that is as thick as cellophane. So that's pretty impressive. That's 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 what I've read anyway. I haven't actually done a demonstration of that, but uh, it seems likely. Um, it also conducts electricity a hundred times better than silicon and a thousand times better than copper. Uh, it's transparent. It's transparent. It's bendable, and, and that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. 
the iceberg. Now, uh, the application of this material in, in a myriad of near-term objects from electronics to bulletproof vests had, literally have scientists and non-scientists uh, almost watering at the mouth. I mean, it's just so compelling. It's even more awesomer than all that. That's a, that's a, that's a word, right, Rebecca? Sure, why not? Okay. Uh, so recent experiments show that it can, it can conduct essentially an unlimited amount of heat. So that's, that's the crux of this latest news. And it, so it basically, if you tested its heat conduction and you measured, say, X amount of heat per unit of time, um, and then you made the sample of graphene just a little bit bigger, it would then logarithmically increase the amount of, amount of heat it could conduct. Very, very amazing. And that's because of, uh, Fourier's law of thermal heat conduction. Now, this law says that, um, in part, it says that the material's size or shape should have no impact at all on the rate of heat transfer per unit size of the material. So it shouldn't make any difference. So thermal conductivity is an invariant aspect of any material, a constant, and they've never seen an exception to this, to this law until graphene, of course. Now, ultimately, though, this isn't really just a, a magical feature of, uh, of just graphene. The researchers believe that, th- that this, this new behavior is essentially an outgrowth of the fact that it's essentially a two-dimensional that it's a two-dimensional structure and it's, it's chemical bonds are very, very stiff. And for, for some reason, those kind of work together to produce this, this amazing effect that it has with heat. Now, now that we've entered material science that's, that's essentially two-dimensional, we're seeing the, this amazing stuff that's going to have some amazing materials applications. So then the, up, the upside then for this discovery is that graf, uh, graphene could be an amazing boon uh, for electronics just based on, on the way that it handles heat alone. Alone, uh, not even mentioning other, other, you know, these other amazing properties. So heat, uh, I don't think we've talked about this much on the show, but heat is the the bane of electronics. It's really an incredible problem for for modern electronics. Getting rid of heat is one of the key stumbling blocks that we're facing now with all these these faster and denser electronic components. Do you think, Bob, that a essentially a computer chip? And incorporates graphene is and are we any, anywhere close to that? Because that would seem the obvious application. You have a substance that is really highly conductive, and it, you know it can be used to make a semiconductor or whatever we need to for a good processor, and also would be essentially self-cooling because it will wick away the heat. Exactly, that, and that's one of the major benefits of of this uh, this heat conducting capability. It can cool itself, right? Which is which is amazing. So I think, yeah, I mean, they've I've read comparisons to silicon, and and it's it's um, better than, than silicon in in many different ways. Or silicon in, in lots of different ways. So I think, yeah, I think uh, I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't know what the cutting edge is in terms of turning graphene into uh, all the components necessary uh, for for computer chips. But um, but I think that it's definitely a possibility, and I think uh, th- that may be one of the initial applications we see. Hopefully, you know, who yeah. could five, ten years? Who knows? Five years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> magic five years. <laughs> uh, Rebecca, far and away, the most common item we've had emailed to us over the last week was this new website that sheds some light, perhaps, on correlation and causation. So, uh, yeah, this, I, I really love this. It's a site called Spurious Correlations by Tyler Vegan, Feigen, maybe? Uh, T-Y-L-E-R-V-I-G-E-N dot com. <laughs> He wrote a uh, an algorithm, basically, that searches through statistics from the U.S. Census and the CDC 
and uh, it takes that data and finds things that have correlations and then charts them. So a random one would be the number of people who drowned by falling into a swimming pool, which correlates with the number of films Nicolas Cage has appeared in. Or the per capita consumption of cheese in the U.S., which correlates to the number of people who died by becoming tangled in their bedsheets. And it's brilliant. He's got the stats for each year beneath each graph, and he lists how close the correlation is. It's it's brilliant. And it's a nice way, uh, a nice easy way to point people in that direction if they have trouble understanding that correlation does not equal causation, which is kind of a basic sort of logical fallacy that we talk about all the time on here, but that can be really convincing. Uh, for instance, it's one of the reasons why we think that people suspect that vaccines cause autism, because children tend to be diagnosed with autism around the same age they get a bunch of vaccines just after they get a bunch of vaccines. So people put the two together. There's a correlation there. They assume that there must be a causation, that vaccines must have caused the autism. But of course, correlation does not mean causation. So yeah, this is a really good site to point people to, to say, you know, just because the divorce rate in Maine has been decreasing, as has been the per capita consumption of margarine in the U.S. It does not mean that more people, less, fewer people are getting divorced in Maine because they're not eating margarine anymore. But it might. But it might. Probably not. Yeah, I I like the one when I wrote it, but I used the U.S. spending on science, space, and technology correlates with suicides by hanging, strangulation, and suffocation. Right. Wow. And the the beautiful (laughs) thing is it's not just like there's a linear relationship. They're both going up. These are curves that are like tracking with each other over a long period of time. They're really – the ones that we are picking out are cherry picking obviously out of the – Countless possible correlations are they really track well, and if you just look at that chart, it would seem entirely compelling that there's a real correlation there, but yeah, some of yeah. them are are more in line than others, and that's why he's got yeah. the correlation listed, but yeah, some of them are just astoundingly similar to a scary degree but what it demonstrates is the power of data mining. If you have a large data set and you are looking for any possible correlation, you'll find them and you'll find them that they seem stunning, which is why whenever we use correlational observational data, I mean, obviously, sometimes correlation is causation. It's just just not necessarily so. But the first question you always have to ask yourself, is the correlation real? Before I try to explain the correlation, et cetera, let's just first find out if it's real. And when you find a correlation that involved any kind of data mining, then you have to verify it by looking at an independent set of data to see if it continues to be true with fresh data. Otherwise, don't even waste your time speculating about what's causing it because it's you haven't even established it that the correlation's real. Yeah, so I think it's it's a great site for driving home this one lesson. Asia, you when we were asking what you wanted to talk about, you said that you want to talk about lab-grown vaginas. Absolutely. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> or as as we've been calling them, foginas. Foginas. <laughs> <laughs> I think engineered vagina would be better. 
or more appropriate. Engineered. Okay. Mm-hmm. I like that one. Uh, that's uh, what they're quoting here in the article that was sent to me uh, a couple weeks ago. Hey, you got to be excited now. <laughs> it's actually pretty exciting what they were able to do. Uh, I'm uh, pretty amazed. So The Verge uh, posted an article that uh, somewhere between 2005 and 2008 that uh, they grew four vaginas in a laboratory that were successfully um, implanted into these women. And it is now, uh, geez, that's about an eight, nine-year period since they've had it done. And they are functioning and working just like a regular vagina. And the patients that they decided to, yeah, that's amazing. I didn't really realize that people would need a vagina made for them, but uh, there's apparently a disease called, it's it's a fancy one, Mayer Rokitansky Custer Hauser Syndrome, and it's shortened for MRKH. And it causes about 1 in 4,500 girls to be born with other an undeveloped or an absent vagina. Yeah, along with other problems as well. It's, yeah, associated uh, with the uterus. Yeah, they essentially don't develop their malarian duct. This is like early on in development, organ development. And so they don't get a uterus or a vagina, and they can also have kidney malformations and other problems as well. But they can have ovaries, and they can have normal, otherwise secondary sexual development and characteristics, and they're genetically normal. Uh, so we don't, and we actually don't know what causes it. Most of the cases are sporadic, meaning there's no family history, and we don't know what is going wrong in the developmental pathway. Re- that results in this suite of, of problems. Although there are, I discovered, there are some people who do have an apparently autosomal dominant inheritance pattern, meaning that it appears to be genetic in some families and you inherit it. Uh, each generation gets it. It's a dominant, you know, inheritance pattern. Yeah. And there's the, the prior to this, the, the, the fix has been surgical. You, you make a vagina surgically and then they were lining it with either skin or intestines. Uh, so this seems, like a better option. But guys, when you say vagina, are you talking just about the outer portion or the entire organ? Well, there's no outer portion of the vagina. You know what I mean? That's I'm like, correct. I, I, the labia? Explain it, labia? explain it to me in layman's terms. So the inside is what they're <laughs> recreating. Right, but is it yeah. just, what, what part of the vagina? Like, I, I hate to sound ignorant about it, but what, what part are we talking about? According to the uh, MRI image, that they're just missing the interior and in Really rare cases, they're missing part of the exterior, which they can recreate using surgery. So sometimes, Jay, uh, girls discover that they have this problem because they just fail to uh, menstruate. So just from the outside, everything looks fine, but then they, they never menstruate. And so they, they, they get an examination, MRI, MRI, whatever, and they realize that things are underdeveloped on the inside. So one thing I'm, I'm curious about, which I, I couldn't find any detailed information on this, they say that the... Uh, the vaginas that are that are surgically implanted, you know, from the lab-grown cells, that they're functioning normally, and that includes, by the report of these four patients, normal sexual function, which operationally they said that means uh, pain-free intercourse, which is great, although that's kind of a low bar, if you know what I mean, just that it's pain-free. Uh, but I, I, my, my, my specific question is I wonder how much sensation they get. If any, you know, that, that's, which wasn't directly addressed in anything that I read. I would definitely think it would be more functional than what's provided for, say, a transgender person. Cause they're just given a canal that they have to dilate and keep open for about a month. And then they have, you know, this hole that's kind of like a vagina. I wonder if they'd be able to transfer that to somebody who's a transgender, but they're using, uh, skin cells and it's about the size of, uh, I believe they quote half a stamp. 
then they grow them in the uh, chamber. So specifically, they take vulvar tissue. So it's not just like regular skin. So they're trying to get as close as they can, you know, to the kind of epithelial cells that you would have in a vagina. Um, but it's, it's yeah, so the, they're, they scaffold the muscle cells and the epithelial cells as two separate layers so that it you know mimics the actual anatomy of a natural vagina. So it's actually pretty pretty sophisticated. Yeah, there's some scaffolding involved as well, and they use that to kind of have a base to be able to implant it. Do you guys know what the scientists exclaimed when they uh, realized their research panned out? Uh, no really. idea. Urethra! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Asia. I knew you'd laugh. Ure- urethra? <laughs> yes. I mean, the urethra, the, the urethra is separate, separate from the vagina. That's about. That's I'm willing about to urine. go with the joke just because they quote about <laughs> inserting your the urethras in boys. Di- different house, same neighborhood. You know that you. girls don't pee through their vagina, right? Because <laughs> actually, this is something that came up recently. There was a Reddit thread on the women's subreddit two X chromosomes, where they were like, "What's the dumbest thing a guy has ever said to you?" And and a shocking number of people reported men not knowing that women have separate holes for peeing and for their vaginas. Like they, yeah, just they did not realize. And then, like, I'm talking like adult men, like in their twenties and thirties. So yes, so Evan, your joke was not anatomically accurate, but it was damn freaking funny. Well, that's also <laughs> up for debate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's ask the guest. All right. Well, thank you, Asia. You did excellent on your news item. Well, Evan, it's that time of the show again where you get us up to date on who's that noisy. Yep. Yep. This one you had a couple weeks to ponder and make guesses on. So I'll go ahead and play it for you again so you are reminded. Here we go. The sexiest thing in the entire world is being really smart. I haven't seen you my whole life. And, and now you come back and just expect a relationship? I hate you. So first, to a group of tiny creatures among the first life forms on Earth, bacteria, responsible for keeping our own ecosystem ticking over. But when they attack us, it's an ugly sight. All right, so the audience had the task of, first of all, naming those three voices. So this is kind of a puzzle and a noisy all wrapped in one. And then you had to go through the process and figure out what, in the world of science and skepticism, do the three of these people have in common? Okay, so they were, in order, Ashton Kutcher from his uh, now-famous MTV award speech, uh, Seth Green from uh, his part in the first Austin Powers movie, and Dara O'Brien, who runs the show, uh, uh, who has a show about, uh, you know, science and... Uh, things related to science, one of several shows that he's on. But we know him to be a popularizer of science uh, as well. Those are the three names. Lots of people got those correct, but only a few, a select few, are able to figure out that the thing that these three people have in common, they're all, they're all com- you know, actors, comedians, whatnot, uh, but that has you know nothing per se to do with science or skepticism. But the three of them have all taken a ride on the Bomber famous... Comment? Vomit Comet. Oh, yep. cool. Or also known as Reduced Gravity Aircraft. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it gives the occupants the sensation of weightlessness by following a... Parabolic, uh, parabolic, parabolic arch. Yeah. arch. And you get a sense of uh, weightlessness. I want to do that so badly. Oh, God. I wouldn't hesitate. So do it. 
You think you will? I know. Yeah. I mean, can can you just like pay for it and do it? I think you can. I yeah. don't know. I believe that you can. I don't have those details, but they must be out there and available. Yeah, Bob, and, do it and report back to us. Okay, we'll do. Yeah, bring back, bring back whatever you throw up. So, <laughs> so, so we can see you can prove it to us. Like I said, there were a couple of people who actually got this one correct. Uh, this was uh, not an easy one, but well done. Uh, this week's winner, Robert Dahlstrom. Robert Dahlstrom. Well, well done. done. Very well done, Robert. Congratulations. What do we got for this week, Evan? Here we go. Who's that noise? I don't know what it is, but it's weird and pissed off. (laughs) (laughs) I would agree with that description. (laughs) All right. So if there are some people familiar with uh, this particular... Noisy. Creature, creature making this noise. I think they'll have a, a good advantage. Um, but, uh, for other people, just, you know, go ahead. Give it your best guess. Whatever you think it is. Funny, ridiculous, outlandish, alien. I don't care. Send us a guess. And you can uh, email that to us. WTN at theskepticsguide.org. As I say every week, good luck, everyone. All right. Thank you, Evan. Well, guys, let's take another break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week. Hulu Plus. Hey guys, you've all tried Hulu on your computer, right? A lot of people have, but Hulu Plus is just so much more. With Hulu Plus, you can watch current season episodes of your favorite shows like Modern Family, which is awesome, The Daily Show, and Scandal. And you can watch every episode of shows like Nashville and Lost and Doctor Who. Uh, it's just it's so much out there. It's just a never-ending supply of great stuff to watch. Yeah, and you can stream those shows and thousands more as much as you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. Because Hulu Plus works on your computer, Smart TV, Roku, Apple TV, Xbox, PlayStation, Atari, pretty much any streaming device you already own. But not Atari. <laughs> not Atari. That's right, Rebecca. You can watch on your phone or iPad while you're on the train at work, at the dentist, uh, or in the bathroom. And you can even <laughs> block off a day to binge on it. So you'll get access to originals that you can't get anywhere else. Hulu Plus also has anime and Korean dramas. I can watch my favorite show, Community, and watch Naruto, One Piece, and Attack on Titan all in the same place. Yeah, seven ninety nine a month, guys. We'll get shows anytime, anywhere, and that's like what? I have a quarter a day? Oh, barely. So right now, sign up at HuluPlus.com slash SGU or click on the banner on our homepage and get two free weeks, full access, completely free. All right, thanks, guys. Well, let's get back to our show. Joining us now is Massimo Piliucci. Massimo, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Yes, and you, we always like to point out that you were our first guest on the SGU. You have that honor that no one else can ever take away from you. It's one of my most treasured ones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. That's sad. <laughs> <laughs> so, Massimo, we asked you to come on the show because we were going to talk about uh, one, of the, one of the more uh, common items that our listeners emailed us this week asking us to discuss. We're, we're just getting to the end of the new Cosmos reboot, and I, I loved it. I think we everyone is, is oh, yeah. been very, very fond of it. And um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, definitely an excellent science communicator. I think he did an excellent job. Um, but during a recent interview, he said some interesting things about the relationship between philosophy and science, and who better to comment on this than our friend Massimo, a philosopher 
and scientists. So what do you, what do you think? Let's, what, what, what did he say? You know, so this, this was actually the, the latest episode of Neil getting in, in himself into trouble over that. And, and as you probably know, he's not the only scientist, and especially the only physicist, really, uh, in, in recent years to do so. But he was on a podcast, and he was, you know, um, joking around and all that. And so to some extent, there was also some kind of, uh, you know, lighthearted, uh, comment, but nonetheless, at some point, somehow the the the, con- the, the topic of philosophy came up, and um, he said basically that philosophy, and I almost quote directly, uh, verbatim, uh, can really mess you up, and and that he would not suggest an undergrad, a bright undergraduate student, to go into philosophy. And I said, whoa, what, what a minute, what, what is why why is Neil saying that? And then when he went on, basically deploying the same, it's just sort of become a standard thing among some physicists. Uh, the idea that, well, philosophy um, is really not particularly, you know, it's dead or it's not particularly useful because, after all, it hasn't done anything for to advance physics over the last sort of 100 years or so. I actually produced the, the transcript for the podcast, for that segment of the podcast. Then I went back and actually I checked several other uh, quotes that are available around from Neil about on, on the same topic. And I finally sat down and I wrote a long, I think, balanced and constructive essay uh, for my sort of new webzine, Sensia Salon. And I sent it to, to Neil. I said, look, um, you know, we, we uh, know each other. You've been on my podcast for a couple a couple of times. And, you know, I think I, um, I owe you to send you this ahead of time. I think it is constructive and respectful. But nonetheless, I like your, your you know, feedback on it. And if you want, of course, you can you can respond to it. So we engaged into uh, correspondence, for, correspondence for three or four days before the essay was published. It was published this past Monday. And uh, Neil was very nice, and he repeated several times that I had not misconstrued what he is, what he, what he said. That I, I did understand precisely uh, his meaning, so there was no, you know, straw manning around and all that sort of stuff. But ne- nevertheless, he didn't really concede much of, of a point, and uh, it was a little bit frustrating, frankly, because what I told him, he, he really didn't understand what what the big deal was. And I said, well, the big deal is that you are a brilliant science communicator. And you have a large audience. You reach people, uh, many of whom are, are bright young kids who are going to go, you know, who are into high school or college, who are going to go into science or maybe, in fact, going into philosophy. And these are people who respect your opinion as a public intellectual. So if you go around saying that an entire field of inquiry is useless or hasn't done anything uh, over the last 100 years... Uh, you know, people will pay attention. You, you're causing real damage. And I think, you know, with, with, with great power comes great responsibility. I've heard that once. <laughs> yes, I didn't. I didn't come up with that one. <laughs> but he, he didn't move. He said, he basically said, yeah, you're, you, you're being fair to my position, which is that I don't think philosophy is useful. Is right. So, so he, he, he qualified that. Um, and in fact, it's quite a qualification, first of all, because one of, one of the problems when, when people, especially physicists, I noticed, uh, talk about philosophy, they don't really mean philosophy. They mean philosophy of science. Um, because he said, you know, well, there's plenty of areas in philosophy where philosophers have a lot, lots of things to do, like, uh, to say, like, for instance, in ethics and, you know, epistemology. And I said, okay, well, so your beef really is with philosophy of science. And so he, he agreed that that's, yes, that's the, that's the situation. And I said, but okay. The problem, however, is that there are two things that are uh, incorrect with your statement that, uh, philosophy of science hasn't done anything for physics over the last 100 years. The first and, and bigger problem is that that is not the point of philosophy of science. Uh, philosophy of science usually, and there is an exception, I'll get to that in a minute, 
It's not in the business of solving scientific problems. We got science for that. Right. And it does a very good job. So, um, you know, philosophy, the way to think of, uh, of philosophy of science is similar uh, to the way we should think about, let's say, history of science or sociology of science. These are all, all three of them are fields that look at science from the outside and trying to understand how science works and occasionally even engage in some kind of science criticism, but from the outside. The difference among those three, of course, is that History of science looks at the historical developments of science, you know, the things that, you know, the dead, the dead ends and as well as the, uh, the things that worked out and why they worked out. Sociology of science looks at science as a social enterprise. After all, scientists are human beings. They interact with each other in certain ways. They observe, of course, the, and are influenced by uh, the external cultural milieu within which they, they live. And then philosophy of science looks at it from the epistemic perspective. That is, you know, the logic of scientific discovery, the logic of individual scientific theories and, you know, the relationship between data and theory and that sort of stuff. So you, just in the same way in which you would presumably not complain about sociology of science or history of science because they haven't contributed to, res to solve any scientific problem over the last hundred years, you shouldn't really complain about philosophy of science for the same reason. Yeah. Um, now, there is an exception to that pattern, and that's my, the second reason I think Neil is wrong, and that is there is a small Sub subset of philosophy of science where philosophers really get into collaborations with scientists uh, in biology, in physics, um, in, in, in specific areas of physics like quantum mechanics or you know, string theory and so on. And those are areas where the philosophers develop a in-depth sort of analysis and criticism of certain concepts within those disciplines. And that conceptual analysis comes really close to being theoretical science. So there's there's a borderline there. There's a, a porous border between conceptual analysis in philosophy of science and actual theoretical science. So much so that if you actually look at some of the papers that are published in those areas, uh, it's hard to tell whether the author is a philosopher or a scientist. In fact, sometimes they're both, meaning that they're, they're collaborations. And so I told Neil, I said, in that case, you're factually wrong because actually there's quite a bit of philosophy of science that has contributed uh, to both physics and biology. And examples include papers on, on the different interpretations of quantum mechanics, papers on the, on the um, uh, epistemic status of string theory and related uh, fundamental theories of everything, or in biology, uh, there's a uh, rich literature on species concepts uh, or, for instance, on um, uh, methodologies for reconstructing phylogenetic uh, trees, that sort of stuff. So th these things are uh, actually documentable. And I say, you know, I, I can send you lots of papers that, that actually show that there's quite a bit of active scholarship about it. So you are, in fact, factually incorrect when you say that there hasn't been any contribution. Now, if you expect, expect, however, philosophers to solve, you know, major big thing like, you know, coming up with uh, the idea of a Higgs boson, then, then you're barking up the wrong tree because that's not, not their job. So if I could summarize a little bit of that, theoretical scientists are doing their activities very similar to philosophy. And sometimes philosophers are informed by empirical processes and they kind of merge in the middle. So there isn't really even a sharp demarcation between theoretical scientists and empirical philosophers. That's right. I, I think that it's fair to say that there is a core component to the, the, uh, theoretical science that is clearly not philosophy, just like there is a core component of philosophy of science that is clearly not 
uh, science. But then there are areas where the two grade into each other. And by the way, some physicists are very well aware of it. Uh, uh, Sean Carl, uh, for instance, criticized Neil recently for essentially the same reasons. Um, and in fact, Carol has just published a, in uh, essay on his blog um, late last week, I think, where he was doing for what essentially amounts to a conceptual analysis or philosophical analysis of, uh, of the differences between different interpretations of quantum mechanics. And he was, you know, wondering about uh, whether at some point those different interpretations, which are at the moment, as my understanding is, you know, don't don't trust me too much because I'm a philosopher of biology, not of physics. But my understanding is at the moment, those interpretations essentially don't make discernible empirical uh, predictions. That is, you, you, you can't tell the interpretation of quantum mechanics from another. But, but Sean was saying maybe at some point they will and it would be interesting to see. And he was, you know, sort of nudging in things in that direction. Essentially, he was doing philosophy of science. He was, was doing a conceptual analysis of a scientific theory. So um, I'm trying to figure out why so many physicists have a problem with the philosophy of science. And, you know, just relating it a little bit to my own field of neuroscience, uh, I certainly feel that there are some philosophers of mind, which is another kind of philosophy of science, get into what might fairly be called philosophism. Is that a word? Did I just make up a word? Is that... <laughs> I think you just made up a word, but yes, fair enough. Like like scientism, but this is philosophism, where they are trying to answer scientific questions with philosophical methodology. Like when they try to tell me that the materialist basis of neuroscience doesn't work because of some phil philosophical reason, which I think is BS, I think that they're overreaching. So, I mean, are they reacting to that sort of thing happening in physics or or – or are they just not, don't really have a basis for their re react reaction? That's a good question. I mean, you know, it is fair to say, uh, that, that some philosophers do engage in, in philosophism, which I think it's, again, fair to say it's sort of the philosophical equivalent of scientism. Um, you know, there's, there's some bad philosophy being done and there is some, or at least questionable philosophy being done. Actually, philosophy of mind is a particularly egregious example. I mean, there's, there's a significantly higher uh, number of, of instances that I can think of there than, let's say, in philosophy of mathematics or philosophy of physics or philosophy of biology. Um, you know, why that is? Well, probably because I, I think you would agree that the science there is um, uh, less mature. It's, it's, it's exploding. It has been exploding for the last uh, several years, but it's less mature than, let's say, quantum mechanics or you know, evolutionary biology or that sort of stuff. And that is, that's a typical historical pattern. That is, uh, the balance between, at the borderline uh, fields, the balance between science and philosophy tends to lean toward the philosophy when the science is young or, or, or still immature, and then it shifts over uh, to the sciences when the sciences do mature. So I think that's a fair, uh, a fair issue. Uh, then again, there's also a lot of bad science, as I'm sure you know, yeah. uh, on the other side of the divide. So it's not, you know, like it's it's not very useful to start counting. Well, here's this many philosophers that they're, they're saying crap. Well, yes, there's all sorts of scientists saying crap, and there's, you know, that's 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 the name of the game in in academia. A lot of people be, write things that then later become questionable or are, you know, at face value, sort of very bizarre. Um, in the case of physicists, however, I think the the, the reason is different um, because I don't see as many cases of that sort of phenomenon that you were describing happening in philosophy of physics. In fact, philosophers of physics, as far as I can tell, have a very solid grounding in physics, and they and they're really you know serious serious uh, contributor to the field. So the I think that what it is is just this generic attitude and sort of essentially misunderstanding 
uh, sort of cartoonish version of philosophy. And, and I can tell you, you know, with, with um, Neil was, was very illuminating, actually, to have these conversations. Because at some point he said, well, look, I don't have a problem with philosophers like Popper, who essentially described what scientists do and mostly talk to the general public. And I said, Neil, wait, that's not at all what Popper was doing. Popper was famous for being one of the most prescriptive philosophers in the history of the 20th century. I mean, he, was, yeah. he really was telling scientists what they ought to have done. <laughs> he was definitely not descriptive. So I suspect that there is some kind of, you know, this uh, dismissal of something that they have a, cart- a cartoonish idea of. And it's fine with me if a scientist has a cartoonish idea of philosophy. It's not their job. Yeah. It's a little less fine if that person is somebody... With, with a broad public audience at his command and, and starts you know, saying the kinds of things that Neil has said. And by the way, I, sh- I should say, all throughout his conversation with Neil, things have, be- have stayed cordial and you know, we've, we've, we've gone at each other's with arguments, but, uh, but, but the whole thing was very cordial, I, I think, as it should be. Yeah, as I would expect. All right. Well, Massimo, we appreciate you coming on our show to explain all this for us. A pleasure as usual. <laughs> yep. Always, it's always a pleasure to talk to you about these kind of things. I always learn something. Thank um, you very much. Yeah. So and we'll get you back on the show sometime soon. Absolutely. It'll be, be a pleasure. Are you going to make it to TAM this year? Uh, no, I'm not scheduled to make it to TAM because I have to work toward uh, you know gearing up for my new job. I just was, I was just offered a new position um, and I'm, I'm moving to City College here in New York. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. It's going to be, I'm going to be in, the, in charge of directing their program, their master program in history and philosophy of science. And so it's going to be an interesting summer for me, sort of transition from one thing to another. But I do have a new book in the makings. So, you know, I'll let you know when it comes out. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk when, the, when your new book comes out. <laughs> okay. All right. Take care. Well, everyone, we have to take a break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Citrix GoToMeeting. Yeah, you know, you can't always plan all of your meetings in advance because stuff comes up and you're working with different people from different offices or you're on your on the go. And so it can be impossible to get everybody in the same room when you need to meet. So you can instead use GoToMeeting, which is a powerfully simple way to meet and collaborate online. Yeah, we use it a bunch of times for the show. and We all love it. It's so simple. That's what I love about it. Steve sends us a link. You you uh, click the link, a couple more clicks, and you're on. It's no hassles. It's not difficult. It's just so easy to get on together and just start recording. Yeah, I use personally, I use GoToMeeting a few times a week. It's super easy to set up a conference. I, I actually have a reoccurring conference that I use, and it does that for me as well. And share documents pass the baton to someone on the other end if you want them to run the presentation for a little while. It's just a very, very easy-to-use, awesome tool. And uh, you can start your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting today. You visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code SGU. So that's GoToMeeting.com, promo code SGU. All right, thanks, guys. Well, let's get back to our show. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. We have a theme this week. Oh, boy. Let me tell you about the theme. So last (laughs) week... I was in Chicago. I was invited to be the keynote speaker for the Evidence-Based Dentistry Conference. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, and actually, no, it's not. No, it was. And uh, 
There's <laughs> two, two. Did guys you fill in there. for someone else? Get no, it, no, fill, I fill was, in. I, uh, fill oh in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Jason and Grant have a podcast, Prism Planet. Evan, you were on that, I think. Yes, I was. They yep, interviewed, they interviewed me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, they 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 interviewed me as well while I was there. Yeah. So you could listen to the episode I was on, uh, episode twenty two. Go to Prism Podcast. So I learned some things about dentistry that I thought was very interesting, and I've parlayed that into a science of fiction. Oh boy. We'll see what you, how much you guys know about evidence based dentistry. Here we go. Zero. <laughs> Item number one. There is no significant evidence that flossing reduces plaque or the incidence of caries. Caries are cavities. Item number two, antibiotic prophylaxis is no longer routinely recommended prior to dental procedures for those with heart murmurs, valve disease, or most other heart conditions. And item number three, daily toothbrushing is associated with an increased risk of receding gums. So Asia, as our guest this week, you get to go first. See, this is interesting because I've I've just gone through some interesting dental uh, work, so I'm not sure if uh, I'm reading this all right, but it says, number one, there is no significant evidence that flossing reduces plaque or the incidence of caries. I would think that it does on the basis that my dentist has just told me. Hmm, antibiotic, how do you even say that word? Prophylaxis. Prophylaxis. Okay. Steve, do you want to... Define yeah. prophylaxis. So prophylaxis. That's just, doing yeah. just in case. Yeah. Prophylaxis is preventive therapy, <laughs> just like condoms is preventive. The idea here is that the recommendation was that if you have, say, a heart murmur, you would take antibiotics before you would get dental procedure in order to prevent getting uh, an infection of your heart valve. So now this item is saying that's no longer the recommendation. Oh, that's so strange because mm. – and then another one is daily toothbrushing is associated with an increased risk of receding gums. And I'm going to say that's definitely true. Mm. So it's a toss-up between one and two. I would have to say that two can't be true. That's so my decision. Saying, so the antibiotic one is the fiction. Yeah, because I would think that at least in Canada, I think that's a, a routine thing to, to provide antibiotic treatment before any kind of uh, dental procedure. All right, Evan, since you were on the Prism Planet podcast, you get to go next. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Um, (laughs) All right. Uh, No significant evidence that flossing reduces plaque or the incidence of caries slash cavities. Well, this would be surprising, maybe the most surprising of the three. We obviously are all raised by our dentist to floss, 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 brush, 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 and floss, floss, floss. But no significant evidence. So that means all the evidence leading up to this has been wrong and they've somehow misconstrued it? I don't quite understand that. I'm holding out that that one might be, might be the fiction. So I'll move on. The antibiotics. Um, no longer routinely recommended prior to dental procedures. I had no idea that they were routinely recommended prior to <laughs> dental procedures. I really did not know that. I obviously knew about the association. Steve had to do it. Steve, you've, you've done it in the past. I don't know about lately. I wish I did know. Um, increased risk of receding gums. Maybe it has to do... I'm, I'm thinking that this one is science. I think maybe it has to do with the how people uh, ding, 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 brush, ding, their, ding. brush their teeth. Um, if you brush correctly... Uh, or do it in a certain way, then you, you won't have that risk. But, you know, if you do it haphazardly or in an incorrect way, then yeah, you will have that risk. So therefore, that leaves me with the first one. Uh, flossing reduces plaque, incidence of 
cavities, I'll say that that one is the fiction. Okay, Bob. Um, I'll start with three. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, that it's more it's how they do it. And if you do it right, you're not going to have much of an increased risk. And and so what? Even if there is an increased risk, so what? Because daily toothbrushing is so beneficial that that increased w- uh, risk is uh, well worth it. So that one makes sense to me. Uh, the other ones, especially one with the flossing, that's just really – I'm suspecting here that there's something – there's some other major benefits of flossing that don't necessarily need to include plaque or the incidence of cavities that that makes that one work. Um, but it's just too just blatant. Like, really? I mean, come on. So uh, I think, you know, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the antibiotic prophylaxis. I, I, know, I know, Steve, you had to do that. I guess I would believe that they did an assessment and realized that, no, it's not – it's really not doing anything. It's not really necessary. So they're not doing anymore. So I could buy that one. So I'm going to say the antibiotic mm. one's fiction. Okay, Rebecca. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that, was a, that was a weird sound. Yeah. Was that, was that the just... groan of regret? That impromptu, yeah. who's that noisy, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Hang on. Let me no, write that down. just like, damn, I'm just like not confident at all. Go ahead. Bob Morning. Uh, okay. All right. The flossing one bums me out because it's it was it's so surprising that I feel like playing the psychological game, I feel like that that it might very well be true. Uh, and that bums me out because I've been really, really good at flossing like every day <laughs> for most of this year. Maybe this is something like the way people usually floss. Like maybe, ah. you know, I've had, I've had dentists lecture me about how like the right and the wrong way to floss. Like you got to get in there. Yeah, me too. And um, <laughs> so maybe, maybe that's what this is about. If you like, don't see blood, you're not doing it right. <laughs> the daily toothbrushing one uh, also weirds me out in a different way. And that's the whole setup of the question I find very distressing. Like does when you say daily toothbrushing, does that imply once per day, Steve? At least once per day. At least. Okay. All right. That's, I should have started with that question. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, increased risk. What does that mean? It could be a very slight increased risk that is heavily outweighed by the benefits of getting all that crap out your teeth. Good so, point. you know what? I'm going to, this is not my field of expertise. I'm going to GWA this. I'm going to go with Asia. I'm going to say the antibiotic thing is the fiction, but I feel like people with valve disease and other heart conditions should probably get antibiotics. I feel like it would be more useful for them. So I'm going to go with that for the fiction. All right. Now, Jay, I deliberately had you go last because you're the person who's obsessed with their oral hygiene. Oh I feel God, the most. <laughs> <laughs> Where do I begin? Oh. Okay. So first of all, the first one is absolutely and utterly wrong. Oh, wait. Let me read it again. There's no significant evidence. No, there is significant evidence that flossing reduces plaque. Um, it's not directly, it's that it's, it's dislodging the food particles in your teeth, which will turn into plaque, right? So I don't think that the flossing process actually is having a huge, significant reduction in the plaque that you've already developed. It's future plaque. And I mean, and I've talked to my dentist about that one, like every time. Uh, this one about the antibiotics. Sorry, guys. That one is absolutely science. They don't give you, they do not give you antibiotics. Only if you have the absolute most severe heart conditions, all, all these other medium and low risk ones, no, no chance. You're not going to get the antibiotics. And I happen to know that because I just asked my doctor about this recently. And I can say <laughs> that because I'm going last. And this last one, daily toothbrushing. God, this one has got to be the, the fiction because for the most part, 
if you're doing if you're brushing your teeth correctly and this is where this all of these are really tricky and I can find flaws in all of these if you're brushing your teeth correctly you will not have a reduction in your gums your gum disease actually re- makes your gums recede brushing too hard and damaging your gums from flossing makes your your could make your gums recede that's why you should use an electric toothbrush and use a very light touch on the even the electric toothbrush but an electronic toothbrush does like 10,000 times the work your teeth feel differently i i mean i've i've one day having to use a regular toothbrush i forgot my electric toothbrush bought a, a regular manual toothbrush and you could feel grime on your teeth with the electric toothbrush there i like, actually agree with that when i travel i have to use a regular toothbrush and i hate it yeah i might as well pick I'm up a stick and start rubbing it all over so the- i think number three the one about um brushing your teeth increases the receding gums i think i have to say that one is the fiction oh so and i have more information i could keep going but i'm editing myself all right so we have a good okay. spread so evan is for the flossing jay for the brushing and everyone else for the antibiotics so i guess we could take these in order uh-oh. There is no significant <laughs> evidence that flossing reduces plaque or the incidence of caries. Evan, you think this one is the fiction. Yes, I and do. And this one is science. Wow. So what is it? There I'm is, bummed. There's basically no compelling reason to floss. No, hang Shut on. That, that can't be right. Well, no, no, Steve, you that's get not food, true. You get food pockets just, in it's there. Food what particle, it's ago. the food particles that you have to get rid of that between your teeth. Yeah, they're gross and they smell, Steve. And it can they cause smell. pain, actually. All right. So systematic <laughs> review, evidence-based dentistry, systematic review. And also, I had the dentist tell me this. I'm like, really? I don't have to floss? Okay, that's interesting. They looked at s- systematic reviews looking at three outcomes of uh, gingivitis, plaque, and caries. Just can say cavities, Steve. Stop talking like a dentist. I'm reading. I'm what reading. is a carry? Just say cavities. I like cavities. <laughs> Holes in your teeth. Thank you. <laughs> so, for no evidence for at all for um for reducing cavities. They said that the evidence for reducing plaque was weak and unreliable, very unreliable. Uh, there is evidence for reducing gingivitis, but and, ba- and bad breath. But the effect is tiny. So there was a small but statistically significant effect, but the evidence really is still only moderate. There's some evidence, they said. So, you know, you could make a thin argument for flossing for the gingivitis thing. Your, but your, your gums will adhere to your teeth. You need, if you floss, you're making sure that there's a, there's a healthy separation between your gums. Yeah, but Jay, and your you're teeth. just stating assertions. I'm telling you about the evidence. Here's the thing. The bigger picture here is that dentists say a lot of things that are not evidence-based. And there's the whole point of the evidence-based dentistry movement that these guys are innovating is actually basing recommendations on scientific evidence. Which well, what good is that? Because more, <laughs> even more so than for physicians, dentists <laughs> tend to be in private practice by themselves. It's very technical. You know what I mean? It's much more independent. There's a lot more resistance to being evidence-based, to having standards and, you know what I mean? And, and there's a, and a much, they, a lot of what they learned is just, they learned it in dentistry school. It's just the culture. They assume it's evidence-based. When you really dig deep, the evidence base isn't there. I'm having a skeptical moment right now. Yeah. Okay? Mm-hmm. It, I yeah. was shocked. How, let me say, let me, shock, let me illustrate real quick. This is important. 
Holy I am crap. suffering. I am in pain right now thinking that my information is wrong, but I am very much open to hearing the new information as much as I'm pissed off at all the people that gave me poor information. Yeah. And I think I'm right. I still feel in my heart. I know I'm fine. <laughs> <right>. what, <laughs> what about bad breath? Speaking Steve? of the heart. <laughs> um, I didn't specifically uh, – uh, let, me, let me finish the items and I'll tell you what I think about that. Okay. okay. Um, all right. Let's go on to number two. Antibiotic prophylaxis is no longer routinely recommended prior to dental procedures for those with heart murmurs, valve disease, or most other heart conditions. Uh, Jay, you think this one is science. Um, the rest of you think this one is the fiction, except for Evan, you thought that one was the fiction. And this one is... Say it. Science. Ah. Yes, of course it's science. Oh, my uh, God. Three, I, I discounted yeah. it in a nanosecond. <laughs> I cannot believe that Asia misled me. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I'm well absolutely done, sure that number three is science. I love that. All right. <laughs> um, so, yes, I, in fact, was one of those people who had a benign heart murmur when I was a kid. It was nothing. My parents totally overreacted. But as a result of that, I had to take antibiotics every time I went to the dentist. And it was completely not evidence-based. So, systematic review resulting in standards. Now we have actual published standard guidelines. Evidence-based guidelines. This is against what the whole evidence-based dentistry movement is about. Uh, and Jay, you're absolutely correct. The indications for antibiotic prophylaxis are you have a prosthetic heart valve, a heart valve repair with a, with prosthetic material. You have a prior history of infectious endocarditis, or you have a, like a severe congenital heart abnormality. Hey, but, this means that my dentist is up to date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, but apparently. everything else, valve repair without prosthetic, meaning, meaning something fake, not biological, murmurs, mitral valve prolapse, and all, all the other stuff they used to do, used to do it for, it's not indicated. You don't need to use antibiotics. Those are the updated good. guidelines, evidence-based guidelines. It's actually a good. And what's thing. also interesting here is that because of this, you have to realize that they're saying that antibiotics should be used very sparingly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're just not shooting them at everyone at any chance. They're saying, man, you know, these are, these are, yeah, I don't want to say dangerous, but these are something to not be abused to such a degree that we're going to lower how often we use them. Yeah, but it's also that they're just not helpful. You just, the risk of getting endocarditis, it, unless you have a prosthetic valve or a major heart malformation, is just not there. It's not just the risk versus benefit. There really just isn't the benefit. I bet it was fascinating to be at a dentist conference. It was. It was. <laughs> and to experience dentist jokes. No, I'm not being sarcastic. No, no. Like, I was... would find it genuinely – like I, I find it very funny to think of a bunch of dentists like having inside jokes about gingivitis. <laughs> like, I love that. I have to, I, this, is, this is so truthful. This is the truth. I made my uh, my tooth cleaning appointment. Very recently, and the lady told me I'm getting my time slot is at two thirty. Two thirty. Oh, I started laughing. So I started yeah. laughing, and she said, "Don't." <laughs> <laughs> She's only heard it a thousand. Times. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Number three, daily toothbrushing is associated with an increased risk of receding gums. That one is the fiction because systematic reviews show that the answer is equivocal. We just don't know if there's an association there or not. There is no evidence that it is. Now, how often should you brush your teeth? That's a really good question. Twice a day. 
Well, that's the uh, standard. Uh, ideally, it's answer. after every time you eat. That's what, yeah. That's kind of what we, We've had as this discussion ne- on SG needed. before about how, like, if you drink orange juice at, at breakfast, should you brush your teeth because then it'll wear away? Yeah. I, I, I asked them about that, too. They were like, nah, you're not going to wear your enamel away. Don't worry about it. Ah. But, <laughs> all right. But here's the thing. The, here's the factor that clearly matters. So tooth brushing is good. Brushing your teeth is very, very good. That's unequivocal fires wow bad, right? really and the critical factor is how much time the yes. brush has in contact with your teeth okay that's pretty much it how how long do you brush does it take you to brush your teeth jay uh, uh, you should uh, your your toothbrush needs to come in contact with each tooth for at least three seconds well mm, i don't i don't even think that's enough but your total yeah. toothbrushing should be about three to four minutes screw that what the hell Who's but got that kind of time? Tooth, Steve, the not with forever. an electric toothbrush. I don't know. So that, Jay, I don't know. I did not specifically look at the electric toothbrush factor, but. Yeah, I just go until my toothbrush tells me to stop. It's most <laughs> average person brushes their teeth for about 45 seconds. You should yeah. be brushing your teeth for three to four minutes. Oh that, my God. Does the strength of the bristles matter? Well, you should use the soft, you should use the soft bris- bristles. But the bottom line with the flossing is that you're probably better off Converting your flossing time into brushing time. Oh my God. If the, That's you, right. the time you waste flossing your teeth, which is not a, proven to be of any benefit, except maybe, maybe for gingivitis. But if you spent that time brushing your teeth, you'll get the stuff out of your teeth. That's the other thing is that if you brush ah! long enough, you will get the stuff out. No way. Some people, some people get food pockets between their teeth well, and they experience uh, a lot of pain and discomfort. So you have to different. floss if to you get have, that out. Like I have, I have this one place in one of my teeth that I cannot brush stuff out of that one little spot. So I, I use instruments to get stuff out of that one spot of right. my teeth. But, um, so that's, you know, if you, if you need to floss to get to certain locations to remove food particles, I, I suppose that's good. But there's just no evidence that it's improves your, your, the health of your teeth. I feel like I've been so misguided by my dentist. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, mm-hmm. it's the, the mm-hmm. conventional wisdom. This is the whole point. The conventional wisdom is not as evidence based as you think. And wow. that when you actually do the systematic reviews, like, oh, look at that. You know, there really, really isn't a lot of evidence for flossing. You're better off just spending a lot of time brushing your teeth. But, you know, guys, take the time. Spend time with your mouth. Don't be afraid to. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do that right now. I read read news items on my phone while I brush my teeth. That's how long I do it. Spend time with your mouth. (laughs) Jay Novell. I want to see like an elementary school poster encouraging kids to brush their teeth with Jay on it. Like a cartoon Jay saying, spend time with your mouth, kids. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Jay, I got one more question for you. Uh, Yes, yes. Do you have a quote for us? Science is more than a body of knowledge. It is a way of thinking, a way of skeptically interrogating the universe with a fine understanding of human fallibility. If we're not able to ask skeptical questions, to interrogate those who tell us that something is true, to be skeptical of those in authority, then we are up for grabs for the next charlatan, political or religious, who comes rambling along. This is a quote that was sent to me by a friend of mine, Named Fred Bremer, friend of the SGU. Fred! Very long time. Good old Fred. And of course, Fred sent me quotes from Carl Sagan! Because he knows how powerful that man's words are. Yes. Thank you, Fred. All right, guys. Don't forget we have the Amazing Meeting coming up in July. And when you register for the Amazing Meeting, be sure to use the code SGUTAM2014 to get your $25 discount. 
Asia, I understand you're going to TAM this year. I am. And what's the code called again? SGU TAM 2014. All right. So let's say it's more of a guideline than a code. <laughs> All right, Asia, did you have a good time? I did. That was a fun experience, that's for sure. I'm glad you liked it. Awesome. It fun Thanks for joining us. Yep. Uh, thank you for your support of the SG. We really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, very much so. Thank you so much. Asia, That's was there great. anything that was different than you thought it would be? Like, what was your experience like? I, to be honest with you, I've been quite nervous through this experience. Um, I wasn't <laughs> quite sure what to uh, expect. And then I was also worried with uh, the technology as well. Because before when I did the test run with Evan, a few things kind of didn't go smoothly. And then I tried to use other tools that didn't work. And I was like, oh, goodness, I have to call you back. <laughs> We tried a few times. We finally got it working. But we worked it out. That's why we did it ahead yeah, of time. Yeah, for sure. Yep. All right. Well, you did a great job. All right. And thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Surely. Steve. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And don't forget that this episode was brought to you by Hulu Plus. To sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite shows right now, and for an extended free trial, go to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU. Or just go to our homepage, and there will be a link right there for you. <laughs>